welcome to Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. My name is John Noyes, and I am your host tonight. It's the third Saturday of the month, and that means tonight is Science Night. And uh, and I should be scared because I am in studio alone this evening, but fear not, I do have a phenomenal guest caller who I would love to introduce in just a minute uh, for you guys, but um, but I just want to say up front, you guys are amazing. We do this for you, our listeners, uh, every Friday night, Saturday morning, depending on how you look at it. Uh, we are here for you, and you guys actually make the world go round for us, and uh, we'd like to say thank you. Uh, this is uh, a totally listener-funded program, so uh, if you feel like you want to contribute to a charitable donation, a tax-deductible donation, uh, we would love to uh, to get that from you. You can do that by going to our website and clicking the donate button. Uh, but beyond that, there's other ways to get in touch with us. And the best way to do that is to hop on your phone right now and give us a call at 888-995-5552. That's 888-995-KKLA. And tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the, the pandemic, of course, of COVID-19, but uh, perhaps in a different way than we have in the past. We're going to be talking about the mental effects that this has. And in a second, I'm going to bring on a guest, uh, Dr. Lauren Martin. I, I, I can't speak highly enough about Dr. Martin. He's, uh, he's received his Bachelor's of Science from Olivet Nazarene University. His PhD, he, uh, he studied neuroscience from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Uh, this is a super smart guy. I'm so glad to be on the phone with him uh, in a second. But I, he's completed a, um, a postdoctoral program uh, or training at UC Davis Mind Institute, where he was part of an interdisciplinary training program focused on the the medical investigation of autism and related disorders. Now, this may not seem related to what we're talking about, but this uh, this program, this training program that he was involved in, listen to this. This is where the, our, the worlds collide here is uh, the stuff that he was studying included epidemiology, toxicology, genetics, developmental biology, immunology, and of course, psychology. Um, Dr. Martin has spent the last 15 years as uh, as a professor at Azusa Pacific University. He's a professor in the clinical doctoral program of psychology, but he's also a chief data officer there, and he's the interim director of institutional research. And uh, I'm going to get him on the phone. Let's see if I can pick this up. It's uh, Dr. Martin. Are you there? I'm here. Oh, my goodness gracious. There is a God in heaven. Thank God, because this would be a, a really short show without you. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure you could handle it. Oh, man, I don't think so. And you know what? Like, I always seem to forget, like, in the introductions, they're always a little awkward for me. And uh, I love something that you included for us. I don't think we included the last time because you were on with us last month um, that, that you have a, a lovely wife and you have two daughters. And you also serve, like, as if you're not busy enough with your family, with your profession, uh, with your research. Uh, but you also serve as an elder at uh, Glenkirk Church in Glendora, which is like so awesome to see somebody of your caliber, somebody of your minds uh, uh, serving and giving back into your community. That it's, uh, it's really needed. So that's amazing. And, and welcome to Apologetics.com again. Oh, thanks, John. Thank you. Did I, uh, did, it's great to be here. Did, did I miss anything? Is there anything that I should have uh, that I should have said that I didn't say? About who you are? No, no. I, I, I think you, uh, you. Uh, that was a, a very generous uh, uh, introduction. I appreciate that. That's that's uh, that's a good thing. You no, know, I kind of just want to dive right into this topic because um, 
yeah, I don't know if you got the feeling from the last show. I'm just really conversational, and I have a lot of questions. I, I actually benefit, I think, uh, more than probably anybody else, especially on the third weekends of Science Nights, because like halfway through conversations, uh, you guys are, like blow in my mind with the stuff you're saying because I haven't ever thought of it like this. And there's so much going on uh, right now, especially in California. And um, I'd just like to lead off with a question about um, like we have the pandemic and it's kind of set itself up. We've chosen uh, certain means to combat the spread of, of COVID-19. And uh, right now in my uh, my world, I've got I've got four daughters and school is supposed to be starting. But, the, you know, both the public and the private schools uh, in almost every single county, I think every, every county that I know of, at least in California, it's not allowed to we're not allowing them to reopen and, and everything is starting uh, with full-time distance program, I'd love to get your, uh, it might be a controversial topic, but why not just start it right there? I, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, as, as <laughs> Let's just jump into the deep end. I have, uh, yeah, I have uh, two daughters myself that uh, are uh, ready to start school, and uh, unfortunately, it, uh, it's going to be uh, a distance uh, education at this point. Um, you know, the, um, this, this presents many challenges for parents, uh, for the students themselves, uh, for teachers. I have a lot of friends who are teachers in, uh, local, uh, public schools and, and, uh, it's, it's uh, presenting quite the challenge for them as well. Um, you know, especially in light of, uh, some of the data that, that has come out that, uh, you know, seems to indicate that you know, schools can open safely. Uh, for example, a new study that was uh, published recently from the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, they found that only 8.8% of COVID-19 cases have occurred in children younger than 18 years of age. Whoa. Uh, this was a quite recent uh, study, too, so it, it includes the, the recent surge and, and younger people uh, being uh, diagnosed positive. And uh, if, if you consider... Uh, that and the, the case fatality rate uh, is also extremely uh, low in that population, uh, 0.03% of cases uh, resulting in death. Of course, you know, any, any death is, is tragic, uh, but, you know, we, we tried to look at this in, in the context of other infectious diseases, and uh, what we see is uh, when you're, you're comparing this uh, novel coronavirus with the past uh, outbreaks of novel coronavirus diseases. Uh, you might remember SARS. There's been a lot of talk about <laughs> SARS that yeah. you know, happened uh, in uh, 2003. And then we have uh, MERS as well. Uh, that was another uh, coronavirus outbreak. Um, both of those uh, outbreaks showed similarly low rates of infection in the pediatric population. So there's a consistency across these coronaviruses. Now, compare that to an influenza uh, 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 pandemic. So you might recall in 2009, we had the H1N1 pandemic. And in, during that influenza pandemic, 73% of cases were patients under 25. Whoa. And the 13% were under five years of age. So that was and significantly so that, higher. <laughs> You're right. That that just shows you the difference, right, between, you know, this particular pandemic and its impact on, you know, children compared to, you know, uh, an influenza uh, pandemic. Can I, can uh, so, I, can, you know, that's, 
Can, can I ask like a question yeah, right there ahead. before we kind of get into, you know, how this is affecting other people like teachers and stuff? Just stay with the kids for a second. Um, sure. My understanding is, is from just doing the reading and, and uh, thank you for in, in your uh, prep for this, you pointed me actually to, uh, to the study that the that just came out from the disease uh, um, from the CDC. And um, I, I as far as I know, in California, I don't think we've had one fatality of a student like a student aged person. Um, and I don't know if that's completely true, but why is the, why are the rates so low for kids? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm just not understanding, uh, why, you know, uh, 8.8% of COVID-19 cases have occurred in children younger than 18 years old. Like what, what's making that happen? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's a, <laughs> a great mystery actually at this point, but there's a lot of, um, you know, thought that's circulating in the, in the science scientific world. And, and by the way, I think there has been uh, now a, a, a single fatality um, that uh, I read about recently Aww. in the Central Valley. So, um, uh, you know, that's uh, quite unfortunate. But um, in terms of, you know, why why it seems to hit, you know, the pediatric population um, so differently than the aging population, uh, one thought, uh, and there's you know mounting uh, studies that indicate this, is that there there is some degree of immunity that's conferred from the uh, common coronaviruses that are you know in circulation and that cause the common cold. Sure. And uh, as as you may be very familiar, having uh, four <laughs> daughters, is these common colds are much more common in the younger population. <laughs> they um, are, certainly are, yeah. They, they do get exposed more frequently than, you know, uh, in the older population. And, and so that's, that's one theory that's been floated as to, you know, why uh, there's you know, fewer cases in the pediatric population. That's incredible. Like I, I, the, the science behind it all is really, really interesting to me. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to like, I, as you are, and I'm sure the majority of the people listening are, I'm looking forward to looking back four years from now and with, with a, hopefully I'm hoping a better understanding of, of how this happened, especially when you're like, you were just saying you were, um, you know, comparing this to, to the two other novel coronaviruses, um, that, you know, in, in the H1N1 pandemic in 2019, where it seemed like the statistics were flipped, where it was 73% of cases were patients under 25 and 13% were under five. Uh, another follow-up question there is, uh, how come we didn't shut our schools down? And and just so you know, um, yep. doctor, I don't have a, 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 you know, a crumb in this cookie here. Like, I just want to do what's best for everybody because I love people. So, but I'm, these are the questions that I'm kind of wrestling with. Uh, yeah, no, I, and and I think you know, rightly so. I think many of us are are questioning, you know, some of the the rationale behind some of the decisions that are made. Um, and you know, certainly, you know, we know that if we did shut our schools down, we could stop, you know, influenza in, infections every year. But we just, you know, there's always a risk reward to every decision, and you know, I don't <laughs> think that's. That's a, a decision that any of us uh, want to see uh, happen. Um, you know, it's uh, you could also, um, you know, eliminate traffic accidents if we all stayed home too. And uh, you know, that's that's actually you know backed up by science, right? So, sure. So we find that there's fewer accidents and there's fewer people on the road. So 
it, it's it's one of those things where you know we have to evaluate risk and reward, and and so I think that's where with the school decision, a lot of the pressure came from teachers unions, and you know we understand mm. teachers you know, have concerns, they have fears, but, you know, I know many teachers who, you know, want to be back in the classroom. Uh, so then, you know, I, I think it's important to talk about teachers and, yeah. and how, you know, we have determined that there's certain jobs that we label as essential workers. And, you know, certainly our, our healthcare workers during this time are essential workers, but, you know, we've also, you know, determined that our grocery workers are essential as well. And, you know, I, I would make the argument that teachers are essential workers. Um, and so then the question is, are we, you know, putting them in harm's way, right? Um, you know, that, that's, that's been like a, a major question that's been put out there, especially with our our um, other essential workers, our healthcare workers. Uh, what about those who are actually working with COVID positive patients? What's, what's that look like in comparison to other essential workers? And so thankfully we have some, some scientific studies that have already been done and published in, in this uh, addressing this question. And, you know, one study that came out of the Netherlands, actually uh, looking at a, a large hospital system there, uh, they took and, and compared their, they're essential workers who were uh, working directly with COVID-positive patients and compared that to uh, the rest of their uh, workers in the hospital system-wide who were not uh, directly, you know, in the line of fire, so to speak, with the COVID-positive patients. And, and they determined that uh, there was actually a higher risk from community transmission than from working with the positive patients. And, and in other words... <laughs> You know, keep in mind they were they were wearing PPE, right? They were they were sure. you know taking the proper precautions here, and you know I think that can be done, right? So that that certainly is important. The masks are important. Uh, you know, um, I, I know that uh, a lot of the models for opening schools involve uh, plexiglass shields and mm -hmm. things like that. And I think all that's great, but th there's there's ways that we can do this that can protect them. And, you know, the evidence is, is boring that out uh, at this point. And, and we've seen that from not just that study, but another study that, that uh, confirmed that as well. The, uh, uh, it's, a, words, it's such a difficult you know, topic because um, yeah, so it, I serve on the, I serve on my kids school board, but my kids go to a, a small little uh, Christian classical school, uh, Beacon Hill Classical Academy and and I serve on the school board there and now these so like the stuff you're talking about right now is like I mean totally real life stuff that I'm wrestling with and it's funny because like you, nobody on the board like nobody gets chosen to be on a school board because they have a background in epidemiology or psychology you know it's like so you have you have a bunch of guys that are trying to figure it out kind of feeling the way in the dark but this is stuff where we're wrestling with we want to protect our kids we most certainly want to protect our teachers um, we want the best thing for, for everybody and it's like going through the protocols and saying, okay, like, what does it look like? Does it masks, face shields, both, uh, either, or, you know, desks separated by plexiglass, you know, how, how can we most effectively get the kids back in school? Because it seems like that's ultimately, I think kids in school is, is a good thing, um, for them. But, uh, but anyways, I was just throwing that in there. Like as you're speaking, like I'm, in, I'm, I'm taking notes and, and totally internalizing this to bring back to my school board and be like, check this out, you know, look at these numbers in these studies. It's uh it's important stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we also have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of, of protecting the children from getting infected, but it's, it's you know, protecting children from uh, spreading it to family members who may be in a high-risk category. And, and I think there's ways that we can navigate that as well. Um, you know, certainly um, education is important, um, you know, educating in terms of you know, who is at high risk? I think we've got a, a lot of evidence now in terms of the, the high risk uh, comorbidities. Uh, we can we can um, really you know focus on that and and ensure that you know there are alternatives for for those who you know may live with a family member at uh, you know high risk. Um, there, there are some options that can be considered, and I know a lot of school districts have actually created great plans that were they were ready to roll with and unfortunately uh you know are are not able to uh you know open at this time yeah and you'd think that if if you have healthcare workers and i understand like you said they're they're wearing the full on get up uh you know it's like hazmat suits and all you know but if healthcare workers are able to work intimately with um with uh, a whole community of people who are infected and they're able to prevent themselves from getting it, I would think that we would be able to be creative in an educational setting and say, okay, well, here's the parameters to, to uh, drastically minimize the, um, the chance of a student or a teacher getting this, uh, this virus. Um, we should be able, I think, be able to do it creatively. Just think about some solutions, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 by doing it that way, I think you'll you'll find that community transmission is still going to be the higher you know risk of them you know from the actual school itself, and uh, so <laughs> which is nice. It, it, it's that's what we're seeing from the data, right? It's it's you know um, it's it, it it is spreading, but it's spreading within you know uh, community gatherings um, more frequently than what we're seeing through you know. Um, environments in which masks are involved or social distancing is involved. Sure. And are there communities, are there more communities that are more at risk than other communities? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, certainly if you uh, look at the data, CDC actually just provided some um, more updated uh, data a few weeks ago in, in regards to the, the median age of death uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, so if you look over uh, racial ethnic groups, uh, the median age of death is 81 uh, in the white population, but it's 10 years younger than that uh, in the African-American or black population and in the Latino population. And so, you know, clearly we have uh, a disproportionate effect of the virus on these communities. And yet when we look at data from the school closures, uh, you know, uh, Los Angeles Unified School District uh, conducted a study of their students and, and released that data uh, a, a while back, and, and they found that these same groups are being disproportionately affected by the school closures as well. Um, on uh, any average day, they found uh, with the, um, you know, the virtual classrooms that were established in the spring, they only had about 36% of middle and high school students that participated online. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and this is, you know, L.A. Unified, uh, I believe it's the largest school district in the country. It's, I'm sure. You know, very large. They, the study actually reported 
Uh, over 50,000 black and Latino middle and high school students in Los Angeles uh, did not regularly participate in the school's uh, main platform uh, for virtual classrooms. And, and so, you know, here you, you have this disproportionate effect on, on these populations that, you know, I think just points to even more reason for us to do whatever we can to open these schools. Yeah, that that kind of breaks my heart here in the that I mean when I'm thinking about the the future, right? So so this is messing with kids' educations. So you have a a, a seventh grader, for example, um, this year surely he's getting passed on to eighth grade, you know, and but he's really not at the eighth grade level. As are I mean I mean more than fifty thousand students presumably. And what's going to happen, not just next year, but what's going to happen in, you know, six years or seven years when he's trying to graduate and then trying to get into a college um, or at least taking the, you know, the, 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 the college prep classes. And, and I mean, you just, everybody just seems to be falling uh, so far behind. And, and I think, I mean, if I'm being honest right now, I mean, I, uh, you know, my wife had to continue to work and I had to continue to work and after everything closed down in March. And I got to tell you on the days that I ran homeschool at my house, know what we were doing? We were going out for hikes and looking at bugs. <laughs> like I wasn't doing math with them. I know that, <laughs> but but I, I I'm I'm nervous for my own kids. Even you know falling behind and um, in school, it's going to be important. I think I think that the the ramifications are going to come out uh, quite a bit in the next couple of years of what's happening. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, I you know I I think for the most part that that you know our, our kids want to learn, but you know that. It, it's very true that, uh, you know, based upon the age of the student, based upon the uh, socioeconomic status of the student, they need different levels of support. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, I had two middle schoolers this past year, and, and so when things were stay at home, they, they were able to work independently because, you know, I was still working, and so yeah. it, it worked out quite well that way. Um, but, you know, they weren't big fans of it by any means. They really missed the... <laughs> You know the the actual social context of being in the classroom. They they miss you know being able to learn you know, d- directly uh, in an environment with you know their uh, fellow students and with the teacher right there with them in the in the room. Yeah, it, it's funny leading into this. My kids. So um, our, our school's kind of unique. We offer what we call a hybrid program where you can choose to homeschool your your children two days a week and then send them three days a week, or you can choose a full time program where you go five days a week. And my kids always every year beg to be homeschooled. I just want to be, you know, I just want to be homeschooled. Can we just do homeschool? Can we just do homeschool? And then we started doing the school from home. And now they're begging to go back to school, you know, and uh, and we had to break the news to them. We just did it maybe a week or two ago that they're not going to be able to go back uh, right away. And they're just so bummed, you know, and um, and this is this is a tiny, close knit community. A lot of the friends that come to our church, you know, so it's not like they're completely isolated. And um, and I'm, I'm wondering about what the, the mental effects of these things are going to be. And I think I'm talking to the perf- perfect person because you're you're a professor in clinical in the clinical doctoral program in psychology, um, and I'd just like to know what the impact of the the shutdown of, uh, that we're seeing across LA is is where I'm you know I know about LA and to be f- full disclosure I don't read a ton of news outside of my local area I just I had to put it down like a month and a half ago. Um, but, but the last time you were on the show, you mentioned, uh, research or like a specific study indicating a major increase in serious psychological distress and, and that's, um, and that this, the, the increase was specifically pronounced in, in young adults. And I find that 
really curious. It actually runs a parallel to a lot of work that I've been trying to do as just a, I mean, just a lay person or just, you know, just a Christian apologist. I've been speaking a lot on suicide and I've seen those rates jump up. I'd love to get your opinion on, on uh, some of the mental, uh, mental health effects that this is having. Yeah, yeah. So, so thanks for bringing that up. Um, actually, that that study I, I I saw as an early warning. It was one of those studies that I actually, uh, you know, quickly shared with uh, you know my pastor and and youth pastor at our church, and also you know at the, at our university as well with our uh, <laughs> dean of students. You know, I wanted wanted you know them to be aware of you know what was being found within this young adult population because um in that study they didn't look at youth but we can just assume that you know when it's 18 to 29 year olds that are uh, indicating they're the ones that are most seriously being impacted here and uh, uh, indicating serious psychological distress that 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 extends you know below 18 and um what what they found in that study was from a uh, a survey of the population done in April, and so you know then the question was well of course if we think back to April those were you know early weeks of this pandemic, you know perhaps when things started to open up and in, in uh, May and, and in particular June you know maybe that led to to a change uh, within that population but. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be the case. There was a more recent study that uh, the CDC just published this week, in fact, in which uh, they looked at um, uh, 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 even larger population, uh, once again, though, sampling adults, and uh, they found uh, almost 41% of respondents uh, reported at least one adverse mental oh or behavioral health condition. Uh, including symptoms of anxiety disorder, uh, depressive disorder. That was 31%. And this is thousands of people that were surveyed. Um, and uh, they found, uh, once again, that um, when they, they looked at this young adult population, they were the ones that indicated they're suffering uh, the worst out of you know, all the uh, adult age groups. In fact, um, Percentage of respondents who reported having seriously considered suicide in the 30 days before completing the survey, it was 10.7% overall. Well, among the 18 to 24-year-old age group, it was 25.5%. That is, I mean, it's so scary, appalling, surprising, shocking, and... um I can't wait to dig into to, to the reasons why, and then also some of the solutions with you, Dr. Martin. Uh, we're on our we're coming up to our hard break, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna go away for like sixty seconds. But I hope that you can hang the line and, and get back with us uh, on the other side of it. If you're just tuning in now, this is Apologetics.com Radio. I'm John Noyce. I'm with uh, our special guest, Dr. Lauren Martin from APU. We're having a, a vigorating discussion about invigorating discussion about uh, COVID nineteen and a different aspect, the mental. Um, the, the, the mental effects that it's having, uh, or the effects I should say that's having on our mental, um, well-being. So, uh, we're starting to dig into some really the, the meat of it. Get back with us in like 60 seconds. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. 
Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about him. And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We're at war. It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, When it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Welcome back. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you. My name is John Noyes. I am your host, your guide this evening at Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. We're broadcasting live from uh, the studios of KKLA. And I said it before the break, and I'm going to say it now. Uh, you guys you guys make the show. You guys are listening. You guys are the ones that, that we do this for. All of our hosts are volunteer, and we just love it. Actually, I was just saying before this, I had a meeting right before this, and, and this is actually my like outlet. This is my creative outlet where I get to come talk about the things that interest me most, and hopefully you guys benefit from that. And if you do find yourselves with listening ears benefiting from what apologetics.com 
Radio has to say. We would love to hear from you, and you can do that in a couple different ways. Uh, the first way is what Lindsey Brooks, my good friend, who used to be a host here, said right before I got on live uh, in his recording, is you can donate to us and show us your support that way. Just go to apologetics.com, click on the donate button, and uh, and do that that way. Or you could just give us a call, and we'd love to hear from you. It costs nothing, and then we're here every well Saturday morning at midnight. That's 888 888- 995-KKLA. That's our number. That's how you can get in touch with us. 888-995-5552. And we're just having a good time. Uh, Tonight, I have a very special guest, Dr. Lauren Martin from APU, Azusa Pacific University. And uh, and he's with us. Uh, are Are you there with us, Dr. Martin? Yes, yes, still here. Awesome. And and just to bring kind of our, our uh, audience up to speed, if they're joining us a little bit late here, is uh, is we were talking about the mental effects that this this that COVID-19 is having. And it's not a it's not the virus attacking our minds or our brains. It's actually the the repercussions of it as we seek to combat the effects of the virus. Those um, th- those measures that we put in place actually do have effects on our lives. And we specifically were talking about school closures and, and we're kind of focusing in and honing in on youth because it seems like at least statistically coming from the CDC studies that are coming out, uh, it's the younger population who seem to be affected by this um, most. And right before the break, you had said that there was a, a more recent study by the CDC published just in the last couple of days, I think. And there were a ton of statistics that we can rerun through. But as I read that, um, Dr. Martin, because we're, we're talking about the effects that this has, as I was reading the study, a quote popped out out of it for me. And I just thought I'd share it with you and see where, see where it goes. But it said uh, the quote, and I'm going to see if I can actually read it. <laughs> my, uh, my contacts are blurring up on me, but we'll see what happens. It says, uh, marketedly evaluate, uh, eval- uh, sorry, marketedly elevated prevalences of reported adverse mental and behavioral health conditions associated with the COVID-19 pandemic highlight the broad impact of the pandemic and the need to prevent and treat these conditions. And, and what pops out from there is there's a there's going to be a need to prevent and treat not the virus, but the conditions that are flowing from the decisions that we're making on how we're going to prevent the virus from spreading or how we're going to deal with the virus. And uh, I, I kind of like just to talk about, like you had mentioned before the right before the break, um, we got into something about uh, suicide, and maybe you could help sum up what we were saying about the percentage of respondents from the study who reported having serious, um, seriously considered suicide in the last thirty days. And what was that? What was the number? There was an increase. I'm, I'm, if, if you remember, yeah, yeah. So um, it's it's you know, unfortunately, it's it's a very high. Um, if you're looking at this 18 to 24 year old uh, uh, age group, um, within the past 38 30 days, it, it's 25.5 percent um, of of the respondents to the survey uh, indicated that they'd seriously considered suicide and. Um, yeah, that that just shows you. Um, it just you know, that's that's much higher than than you know a, a typical uh, you know survey. In fact, when you're looking at um, the rate of anxiety disorder uh, right now, the the prevalence of anxiety disorder is uh, about three times, which that which was reported last year around the same time. And oh uh, depressive disorder was four times higher than um, the second quarter of 2019 for so the, the comparison there. Uh, so you, you're really seeing these numbers uh, that just skyrocketed uh, because of you know, this 
pandemic that we're part of and because of the, you know, stay at home orders that have been a response to the pandemic. Yeah, the, the that number, 25.5% of 18 to 24-year-olds uh, thinking about committing suicide, I almost can't wrap my mind around that. Um, it just makes me, it honestly just makes me so sad that, that, uh, that people, because of the situations, well, I'm assuming, actually, maybe this is the next question I could be asking you, because of the situations that they're, that, that we're placed in, um, it's having a toll on our, on our, you know, our spiritual life. It's having a toll on our social life, on our, um, on our mental conditioning. And it's just super sad that people would, uh, to start believing the lie that they're better off dead than alive and then end up taking their own life. And at this point, I just like to give out the national suicide prevention, uh, lifeline. If you're listening right now and you find yourself, uh, struggling through this, if you've thought of suicide in the, in, in the recent days or months, um, I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that there's people who understand what you're going through. You might not think that they do, but they they do. And you can give this number a call. It's 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. There's people there that want to talk to you. If you don't feel comfortable talking to somebody on the phone, you can go to uh, suicidepreventionlifeline.org and you can do a live chat, uh, lifeline chat there with them. It's through your computer and they'll get you the help that you need. So uh, do not uh, die by suicide. Do not choose uh, suicide. Uh, fight and press on through it. Life will get better, I promise. So I just had to do that, doctor, um, uh, just because you never know Absolutely. who's listening. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you did because I had the, the number pulled up myself ready to, to share it. Because, uh, Great you know, minds. Great minds, Dr. Yeah. Martin. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, why, why do you think, uh, man, this is such a complex question, so I'm sorry to do this to you, but why do you think, um, two, two parts, why do you think people in the current state that we're finding, why do you think that we see the increase uh, all the way up to, uh, I mean, a quarter, a quarter of, of 18, 24-year-olds w- within the study, thousands of people? And then also, why do you think it's in that age range, not high, like not older folks or younger? Yeah. So, you know, um, first of all, you know, to be clear, overall, we're seeing an overall effect, right? There's an overall increase here. Uh, and, and, you know, so other age groups are also impacted, but we're just seeing the strongest impact on, on the, you know, um, the younger age groups and especially the 18 to 24 year old uh, age group. And, you know, at this point, it's 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 certainly speculation, but I, I think it's speculation, you know, based upon, you know, what we do know about um, this age group and and you know what what's the impact of you know the stay at home orders uh, mean for them uh, in comparison to perhaps an older demographic. It's it's very different, right? It's it's uh, a much uh, greater. Uh, con- Using time uh, in life, um, you've got hopes and dreams that have uh, been put on hold. Um, some some that have had to you know change course perhaps from you know where they were headed and and you know whether it be a, a school that they were a part of or or whether it be a, a job. Um, you know, there's there's just a, a lot of change that's going on, a, a lot of fear that's uh, accompanying the the change that's going on and. You know, uh, unfortunately, probably less social support systems 
uh, and certainly, if not less, it's in a different modality than what they've, you know, they're used to. And and I think that's that's really, um, you know, what I would speculate as to why it's impacting this this younger demographic more. Yeah, it's it's been actually. I mean, this is this is something that's actually hit really close to home for me. Uh, last show, so this is two weeks ago. I did a, a special show on. We I have a really good friend. His name's Mike Adams. He just committed suicide on July twenty third, and a lot of uh, what you're saying is hitting home as to like. Yeah, of course, in the wake of suicide, you're always asking the question why, and um, and when you start taking people, you you take these social environments, I think, away from people. There's a support network that's there. And um, especially if you're talking about people who like, uh, you know, that uh, face a lot of um, heat, you know, sometimes we don't. Um, oh, man, I'm, I'm trying to struggle for my words here. Mike Adams, for example, I don't know if you've heard his name, but he was a college professor at UNC Wilmington. And he um, he was very, very uh, outspoken uh, about First Amendment issues. And, and he caught a lot of heat because his words were often very provocative. And so you get somebody who's kind of under the microscope and they're, they're, there's a lot of people from both sides weighing in on their opinions. When you take them out of their social context, you take them out of their support networks, life gets real heavy real fast. And you, sometimes you start believing uh, some of the things that people are saying about you, and this can happen to anybody. So uh, I'm glad that we're able to talk about this uh, uh, out in the open right yeah. here on KKLA and Apologetics.com radio. Now, uh, kind of moving moving things on, like uh, you have a ton of experience studying social behavior. This is like kind of, I feel like your your wheelhouse, especially as it relates to, to autism and developmental disorders, which is like a whole nother show that we could do uh, just on that special area. But I'd love to know your thoughts regarding like social restrictions that, that they've, that they've been put in place as part of the stay at home orders. Like, what are you thinking about that? What are some of the uh, psychological impacts of the widespread use of masks, uh, shields and this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's important to consider like any, any, any major behavioral change that takes place has repercussions that are associated with it. And, you know, that we, we do have, you know, a, a wealth of studies that have been done on, you know, the negative impacts of social isolation, for example. I mean, this is this is uh, something that's been well established within the field, you know, not just, you know, in humans. It's, it's something that's, uh, you know, found in, in uh, a number of different uh, animal species. And even mice uh, are, are studied as a, a model for depression uh, when socially isolated because, it, it turns out that they demonstrate uh, similar, you know, changes in, in anxiety levels and lower allopregnolone uh, levels that are similar to depressed humans. Uh, and so you, you, you see that, you know, this isn't something that, <laughs> that, that we're unaware of, right? We know so social isolation is a bad thing. And, and so then it's a matter of like how we can, you know, best create a, a, a substitute for the presence of another. And, and that becomes very difficult. I mean, we can talk about psychologically reinstating, you know, the presence of another, you know, certainly uh, through, you know, phone conversations or through video conferencing and this sort of thing. But there, there's just uh, so much about the importance of physical, physical contact and, and just on uh, social presence itself, uh, even even some interesting work um, 
for example, in which uh, children, when they um, uh, they actually had a, a study uh, done um, a while back on on uh, looking at the pain matrix within the brain uh, under an MRI, and um, at the same time when a, a child was actually getting um, uh, stuck with a needle uh, as part of a, <laughs> a routine procedure in the hospital. Sure. And they they found that if the child was in the MRI and, and getting the needle stick and the parent was present in the room, there was less of a response in comparison to the group in which the parent was not actually in the physical room. They were waiting in the waiting area outside. That's crazy. And it just shows you, you know, that there was, and, and this was coupled with the, uh, not only like the pain matrix within the brain was showing less activation, but there was a subjective uh, 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 reality associated with this as well, in which they ex- experienced less pain uh, as they shared in, in the uh, survey data. So that's unbelievable. The, the importance of social presence. Um, uh, another study I, I, I love to, uh, you know, uh, tell my students about this, this work that was done at the university of Virginia in which, um, they they took backpacks and the the backpacks had different weights in them and you know they had participants actually put on a backpack and um they then had to look at a slope as if they were going to climb this like hill you know you you look (laughs) at the hillsides right and there's there's always a different slope to it right and so they're looking at it and and of course when you're wearing the heavy backpack and you're looking at a slope you're making a judgment as to the degree of the slope right (laughs) Well, they they found because they had uh, half the participants bring a friend with them, and the friend wasn't wearing the backpack or anything. They were just there in the room <laughs> while their friend was participating in the study. But they found that those who had brought a friend judged the the slope to you know be less of an incline than it really was, <laughs> and the weight to be less than it was. You know, it just tells oh my like, this is oh, really funny. Head. This is like I I'm getting the biggest kick out of this. I've got to look this study up. It's like, but isn't that crazy? The the uh, the effects that the that your mind has, the control that it has. And then also the uh, the just the presence. I mean, like you're saying that the their friend that they brought had no uh, responsibility bearing any weight of the backpack. They were just like, literally, I can picture it just like literally just sitting there next to him. Like, and all of a sudden things things look up, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's 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 life, right? We we go through life together, and we recognize that hey. You know what? When we stumble, when we fall, when the weight of that backpack is like bringing us down, there will be someone there to help support us, to bring us up. And and uh, you know, I think that's that's the hardest part about the you know stay-at-home orders. And for those who are especially feeling isolated at this time, you know, is is you know, it's hard to get that message out that they're not alone. That that there is, you know, you know, certainly. You know our our um, you know relationship with with Christ is is something that can be that uh, support for us that we can feel that presence to know that like that's something that you know we don't have to feel the the burdens right because it lessens the load but uh, you know it's just such a a difficult time right now especially considering churches are yeah. are, are not even uh, allowed to 
function as as normal and, yeah you know it varies by county and what they're allowed to do as well and we have we have like 10 more minutes so why don't we go there and this let's see where it goes but you know there's um there's reports actually um so i live in ventura county and uh there's a church godspeak uh calvary chapel godspeak who uh their pastor rob mccoy is getting a lot of press uh right down also a half hour away is of course john MacArthur's church uh, they've decided to defy public orders both of these churches and they're opening for worship my church solely uh solely deo gloria church sdg uh church solely church is we've been meeting but we've been meeting outside so it's a little bit different um what do you what do you think about all this? You know, <laughs> I'm just going to throw that on your lap and and leave it there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you know, I I I you know certainly believe that you know we're made for community, and you know I think we're seeing that right. Um, and I think with Christians, you know, we we do have uh, this different view on life than non-Christians. And, and in fact, it, um, I, I've got research that <laughs> bears this out. Um, actually, I've, I've done a, a couple of studies uh, with some of my doctoral students in, in recent years in which uh, we've surveyed um, populations. We first study uh, that we did, uh, we surveyed a, more of a college-age population, and then a follow-up study in which we surveyed the aging population, but, but we look at uh, how various factors relate to one's desire for life-extending technology. So these were vignettes in which, you know, one uh, was, uh, you posed the question on whether they, you know, would take uh, a pill that could extend their life beyond their, you know, life expectancy. And, um, you know, we, we had a different forms of, of life extension that you know, we don't have time to get into uh, sure. in, in the final remaining minutes here. But, but you know, what was really interesting uh, about our research, and, and perhaps, you know, while interesting, not you know, real surprising, is that, you know, Christian beliefs in themselves were related to a decreased desire to support or use life-extending technology. And a lot of that relates to the hope of a positive afterlife. Um, but this was also correlated with things like um, higher levels of religious-based meaning-making, um, positive death attitudes. Uh, you know, we talk about, you know, life celebrations, for example. That's often a term that's used at funerals uh, in, in involving, you know, the, the death of uh, a fellow believer. Um, and and so we even intrinsic religiosity, right? This this concept for you know those who engage in in uh, religious activity uh, not because of uh, extrinsic gains like you know social support, which is an extrinsic gain, but rather just because it's meaningful in and of itself. Uh, you know, the, the, these all related to a decreased desire to support or use. Uh, life-extending technologies, and, and I, I think that's, you know, keeping that in mind that there is a different perspective on life that, that's going to be countercultural, that's going to create tension, right? And, and we're seeing some of that tension uh, borne out here uh, in, in how uh, churches are responding differently uh, to public orders. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting topic. You know, I in grad school, I, I went to Biola for my um my master's 
And I had a professor there, Clay Jones, and he just came out with a book called Immortal. And the subtitle is How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. And he has this uh, this saying, um, I haven't read the book yet, but he has this saying, I'm sure it's in there, that, that we all have our immortality projects. And those immortality projects dictate to how we view the world around us and then how we react to certain events in our lives. For example, like what you're saying, you know, if... Um, I have, I have a really good friend right now. He's a, 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 an older gentleman. He's got brain cancer and it doesn't look good for him, but he's uh, he's a believer. So his outlook is, I mean, unbelievably positive, right? I mean, he is, uh, he's looking forward to meeting Jesus. He's looking forward to being there. He's not so much worried about his family and uh, his own immortality project has been his, his faith. So he has confidence in that. Or I think of um, uh, C.S. Lewis, when he was struggling in the in the wake of his death, his the his uh, his wife's death, you know, he found himself wanting her to be back. But then he says, "Well, I don't. I would never wish that against my worst enemy because if she ever came back, I mean, what is this place compared to heaven and these things?" So our our worldview and what we view of the afterlife are um, are extremely important, um, and that's why I think a lot of the times we see people who are non-believers right now, at least in my mind, uh, it's a worldview issue. People are freaking out, super nervous, super worried, uh, where you talk to some Christians, and this isn't across the board, of course, but we have a different outlook. you know. And that's also why I think some of these churches are willing to meet. They're willing, they're weighing the, the, the cost benefits. And, uh, and what's the worst thing that happens, <laughs> you know, in, in a ultimate sense, I, well, we die. And well, I mean, Paul says to live as Christ, but to die is gain, <laughs> you know I mean? Right, uh, right. in a very real way, it's not, I'm not saying it in a morbid way. I'm not saying it, uh, tongue in cheek, but the, one of the best things that could possibly happen to any of us who, who are in the, uh, in the arms of Christ is to, to be with him and, and ultimately to die. Um, so it, you know, it, uh, oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, you know, and, and you take that away and then all of a sudden you got people reacting to this pandemic a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think tempering that with, you know, one's personal convictions and yet also recognizing that not everyone is in that same place, uh, mm-hmm. even in a, uh, you know, a, a church congregation, there are, you know, always going to be a, a proportion of non-believers, uh, depending on the size of the, the congregation. Who, <laughs> this is you true. Know, uh, you know, you you got to be cautious, right? And, and so I think it is it is a balance, right? It's 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 difficult to wrestle with. And, and does that mean we just completely open the church? Well, you know, I think there are precautions that are important. And, you know, that's I mentioned last time, I see, you know, that there's certainly scientific evidence in support of, you know, wearing masks um, when you're within, you know, social proximity to someone. Uh, and so I, I don't have a problem of doing that when mm-hmm. I enter a store. You know, that uh, that's different um, than when I'm outside and I'm not within, you know, yeah. uh, six feet of, of someone. Um, it, it's a very different situation. And, and that's, that's just one other thing that is difficult because that's a major change, right? We, we, we read so much from facial expression <laughs> and it's so difficult, right? To be in that environment now, to walk into the stores, to have that kind of exchange with a cashier that, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I have to remind myself that, Oh, she can't tell that I'm smiling. Right yeah. <laughs> you know, she can't like see that, like I'm trying to express joy. And, you know, the, we have this uh, phenomenon in, in psychology called emotional contagion. 
and sure. well-established fact that you know emotions are contagious, and a lot of that contagion comes through facial expressions. And so that when we actually see someone smile, the way that we interpret that smile, we actually have neurons within our brain that mirror that smile. <laughs> The same neurons that we use when we smile, we call them mere neurons. And so, you know, when that's how we can interpret the actions of another is because we have the same set of neurons that, that are, are firing when we create a movement and when we are interpreting a movement. And so when you're, when you're looking at smiling behavior, you, know, you, you have to consider that we're, we're missing a lot of that right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in a lot of our environment. We're missing that, that emotional contagion, so we're not picking up on those social cues. Uh, I did a, um, a study with a, one of my doctoral students a few years ago in which we, um, you know, our, our goal was to make the world a happier place. So we, <laughs> we, we actually trained uh, a group of uh, participants to smile more. Yeah. We got their baseline smiling rate, and then we trained them using an operant conditioning technique to smile more. But what we measured uh, as a response to that was not just whether they did smile more, and they did, uh, compared to our control group. We also found that um, it actually lifted their affect so it's, that they felt better. Like, that, it wasn't a real smile. Like, we are, we are like, smile. right in our music, and we're right at the end of the show. And, um, okay. and no, but the, Dr. Lauren Martin, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, for, for, uh, for coming on with us in, in this late hour. And I think you're in Indiana. So it's like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think about what time it is for you. But, uh, but I really appreciate, uh, what you've, uh, what you've given us tonight. And, and the, the main thing that I'm taking away is that we need to be there for one another. And, uh, and guys, if you are listening, I want you to know that we're there. This is apologetics.com radio where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm John Noyce, your host. Yeah, your host. And tonight we had Dr. Lauren Martin from Azusa Pacific University on with us. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff. So um, uh, process it and get back to us next week. We'll hear from you then. Bye bye.